Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast of excellence. Talking about Hail and Farewell, Chapter 2, Part 2. Um, and no uh, discussion to speak of. Swim is away. Somewhere in the mountains. Um, and, yeah, I don't know, we were just kind of continuing Chapter 2, so... I am just going to continue reading chapter two and see how far through we can get. I do need to find my place. Here we go. Only once can I accuse myself of any sudden vanity called out of the depths by the side of a newspaper placard. Only certain words excited in me a shameful sense of triumph at, shall I say, having got the better of somebody. Only once, and it did not endure longer than while walking past St. Clement Danes. And I am less ashamed to speak of the joy I experienced five years after the first publication of Ether Waters. The task has to be got through, I said, throwing myself into an armchair, having left my friends at rehearsal. The hospital scenes were not liked, but the story soon picked up again. And when the end came, I sat wondering how it would, could have happened to me to write the book that among all books I should have cared most to write, and to have written it so much better than I ever dreamed it could be written. The joy of art is a harmless joy, and no man should begrudge me the pleasure that I got from my first reading of Ether Waters. He would not, though he were the most selfish in the world, if he knew the unhappiness and anxieties that my writings always cause me, a harmless joy. The reading of Ether Waters truly, and it is something to think of that, the book itself, though pure of all intention to do good, though it is to say to alleviate material suffering, has perhaps done more good than any novel written in my generation. It is no part of my business, nor my desire, to speak of the Easter Waters' home. I'm more concerned with the evil I know the book to have done than with the good. It did good to others. To me it did evil, and that evil I could see all around me when I raised my eyes from my proofs. At the end of a large, handsome, low-ceiling flat on the first floor, very different from the garret in King's Bench Walk, hung a grey portrait of Manet. On another wall, a mauve morning by Monet. Willows emerging from the submerged meadow, on another an April girl sitting in an arbour, her golden hair glittering against green leaves, by Berth Moriost, Morisot. The flowered carpet and all the pretty furniture scattered over the represent, scattered over it represented evil, and the comfortable cook, who came to ask me what I would like for dinner. We read it in the newspaper of the evil a book may produce, the vain speculation of erotic men and women. But here is a case of a thoroughly healthy book having demoralised its author. How is such evil to be restrained? All virtuous men and women may well ask, and I hope that they may put their heads together and find out a way. In Paris I had lived very much as I lived in Victoria Street, but it had never occurred to me that I showed any merit by accepting without murmuring the laborious life in the temple that a sudden reverse of fortune had forced upon me. It was no suffering for me to live in a garret, wearing old clothes and spending from two shillings to half a crown on my dinner, because I felt, and instinctively, that that is the natural life of a man of letters, and I can remember my surprise when my brother told me one day that my agent had said he never knew anybody so economical as George. 
Some time after Tom Ruttledge himself came panting up my stairs, and during the course of conversation regarding certain large sums of money which I heard of for the first time, he said, Well, you have spent very little money during the last few years, and when I spoke of the folly of other landlords, he added, There are very few who would be content to live in a cockloft like this. And looking round my room, I realised that what he said was true. I was living in a cockloft, bitterly cold in winter and stifling in summer, the sun beating on my windows fiercely in the afternoon, obliging me to ride in my shirt sleeves. And it so happened that a few days after Tom Ruttledge's visit, a lady called by appointment, a lady whom I was so anxious to see that I did not wait to put my coat before opening the door. My plight and the fatigue of three long flights in of stairs caused her to speak her mind somewhat plainly. A gentleman, she said, would ask, wouldn't ask a lady to come to such a place, and he wouldn't forget to put his coat on before opening the door. But you have received me dressed still more lightly. With me it is all or nothing, she said, laughing, her ill humour passing away suddenly. All the same, I realised that she was right. The temple is too rough and too public a place for a lady, and it is an inconvenient place too, for in the temple it is only possible to ask a lady to dinner during forty days of the year. Only for forty days are there dinners in the hall. The sutler then will send over an excellent dinner of homely British fare to anyone living in the temple. She used to enjoy these dinners, but they did not happen often enough, and it was the necessity of providing myself with a suitable trysting place that drew me out of the poverty to which I owe so much of my literature, and despite many premonitions compelled me to sign the lease of a handsome flat, the flat sent me forth, collecting pretty furniture which she never saw, for she never came to Victoria Street. I should have written better if I had remained in the temple." Within hearing and seeing of the poor folk that run in and out of the temple lane like mice, picking up a living in the garrets, for however poor one may be, there is always somebody by one who is still poorer. Easter Waters was a bane. The book snatched me, not only out of that personal poverty which is necessary to the artist, but out of the way of all poverty. Oh, I've lost my place. My poor laundress used to tell me every day of of her troubles, and through her I became acquainted with many other poor people, and they awakened spontaneous sympathy in me. And by doing them kindness, I was making honey for myself without knowing it. Easter Waters and Tom Rodledge robbed me of my my literary capital, and I had so little, only a few years of poverty. Excuse me. I've forgotten how long I lived in the Strand, lodging described in my confessions. Two years, I think. I was five or six in Dane's Inn and seven in the Temple. About twelve lean years in all, and twelve lean years are not enough, nor was my poverty hard enough. That last I saw of literature when was, was when my poor laundress came to me in, my Victor- in Victoria Street, standing in the first position of dancing, she used to dance when she was young. She looked around the drawing room. Five pounds was my farewell present to her, and how mean we seem when we look back into our lives. When her son wrote to ask me to help her in her old age, I forgot to do so, and his confession cost me 
as much as some of Rousseau's cost him. In bidding her goodbye, I bade goodbye to literature. Uh, sorry. Uh, no, she didn't inspire the subject of Issa Waters, but she was the atmosphere I required for the book. And to talk to her at breakfast before beginning to write was an excellent preparation. In Victoria Street, there was nobody to help me. My cook was nearly useless in the library, and the parlour maid quite useless. She had no stories to tell of the poor who wouldn't be able to live at all if it weren't for the poor. She thought instead that I ought to go into society, and at the end of the week I opened the door so gleefully to Edward that she seemed to say, at last, somebody is called. I turned round in my chair. Well, how are the rehearsals going? I noticed that he was unusually red and flurried. He had come to tell me that Yeats had that morning turned up at rehearsal and was now explaining his method of speaking verse to the actors, while the lady in the green cloak gave illustration of how of it on psaltery. At such news as this a man cries, Great God, and pales, for sure I paled and besought Edward not to rack my nerves with a description of the instrument or of the lady's execution upon it. In a fine range I started out of my seat in the bow window, crying, Edward, run, and be in time to catch that cab going by. He did this, and on the way to the strand indignation boiled too fiercely to hear anything until the words quarter tones struck my ear. Lord, save us, quarter tones, why he can't tell a high note from a low one. And leaving to Edward the business of paying the cab, I hurried through the passage and into the theatre, seeking, till I found Yeats behind some scenery in the act of explanation, to the mummers, whilst the lady in the green cloak seated on the ground plucked the wires, muttering the line, cover it up, with a lonely tune, and all this going on while mummers were wanted on the stage, and while an experienced actress walked to and fro like a pantheress. I was to her. It was to her I went cautiously as the male feline approaches the female, in a different intent, however, and persuaded her to come back to her part. As soon as she had consented, I returned to Yeats with much energetic talk on the end of my tongue. But finding him so gentle there was no need for it, he betook himself to a seat after promising in rehearsal language to let things rip, and we sat down together to listen to Countess Kathleen rehearsed by the lady, who had put her psaltery aside and was going about with a reticule on her arm, rummaging in it from time to time for certain memoranda, which, when found, seemed only to deepen her difficulty. Her stage management is all right in her notes, Hughes informed me, but she can't transfer it from paper onto the stage, he added, without appearing in the least to wish that the stage management of his play should be taken from her. Would you like to see her notes? At that moment, the voice of the experienced actress asking the poor lady how she was to get up the stage draw attention from Yeats to the reticule, which was being searched for the notes. 
and the actress walked up the stage and stood there looking contemptuously at Miss Vernon, who laid herself down on the floor and began speaking through the chinks. Her dramatic intention was so obscure that, perforce, I had to ask her what it was and learnt from her that she was evoking hell. But the audience will think you're trying to catch cockroaches. Yeats whirled forward in his cloak with the suggestion that she should stand on the chair and wave her hands. That will never do, Yeats, and the lady interrupted, asking me how 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 howls should be evoked, and later begged to be allowed to hand over the rehearsal of the Countess Kathleen to the experienced actress's husband, who said he would undertake to get the play on the stage if Mr. Yeats would promise not to interfere with him. Yeats promised, but as he had promised me before not to interfere, I felt myself obliged to beg him to take himself off for a fortnight. The temptation to deliver orations on the speaking of verse is too great to be resisted, Yeats. One can always manage to do business with a clever man and with a melancholy core. Yeats went away in his long cloak, leaving Mr. Dash to settle how the verses should be spoken, and feeling that my presence was no longer required, I returned to my novel, certain that Erin would not be robbed of the wassail bowl we were preparing for her. But there is always a hand to snatch the bowl from Erin's lips, and at the end of the week Yeats came to me to tell me that Edward had gone to consult the theologian and was no longer sure that he would be able to allow the performances of the Countess Kathleen. You see, he's paying for it and believes himself to be responsible for the heresy which the fried texts in it. Every other scene described in this book has been traced faithfully from memory, even the dialogues may be considered as practically authentic, but all memory of Yeats bringing me the news of Edward's vacillations seemed to have floated from my mind until Yeats pitted his memory against mine. My belief was that it was in Ireland that Edward had consulted the theologian, but Yeats is certain that it was in London. He gave me a full account of it in Victoria Street and was carefully to put Gazi Gaisa upon me, as himself would word it, which in English means that he was careful to demand a promise from me not to reproach Edward with his backsliding until the company had left Euston. The only interest in the point is that I, who remember everything, should have forgotten it. There can be no doubt that Yeats's version is the true one. It appears that I was very angry with Edward and did write him a letter which flurried him and brought him to Yeats's with large sweat upon his forehead. Of this I am sure, that if I were angry with Edward, it was not because he feared to bring a heretical player to Dublin, a man has a right to his conscience. If I were angry, it was because he should have neglected to find out what he really thought of the Countess Kathleen before it went into rehearsal. It seemed that after giving up many of my days to the casting of his play and to the casting of the Countess Kathleen, it is not fair for him to cry off and at the last moment. He had seen the Countess Kathleen rehearsed day after day, and to consult a friar about a play was not worthy of a man of letters. But he was not a man of letters, only an amateur, and he would remain one notwithstanding the Heatherfield Simons had said it. What annoyed me, perhaps even more than the sudden interjection of the friar into our business, were Edward's still further vacillations, for after consultation with the friar he was not yet certain as to what he was going to do. Such a state of mind I must have declared to Yeats, is horrifying and incomprehensible to me. Edward's hesitation must have enraged me against him. It is difficult for me to understand how I could have forgotten the incident. It seems to me that I did proper that sorry, that I do remember it now. 
but how faint my memory of it is compared with the memory of the departure of the mummers from Euston. Yeats and the lady in green had started some days before Yeats to work, work up the press and the lady to discover the necessary properties that would be required in Dublin for both plays. Noggins were wanted for the Countess Kathleen and Noggins could not be procured in London. London. Yeats and Lady in Green were our agents in advance. Edward, with universal approbation, casting himself for the part of baggage man. He was splendid in it, with a lady's bag on his arm running up and down the station of Euston, shepherding his flock, shouting that all the luggage was now in the van, and crying, the boy is who is to look after him. I will be back with the tickets in a moment. Away he fled, and at the ticket office he was impassive, monumental, muttering fiercely to impatient bystanders that he must count his money, that he had no intention of leaving till he was sure he had been given the right change. Now, are you not coming with us, he cried to me, and would have pulled me into the train if it had not disengaged myself, saying, No, no, I will not travel without clothes. Lose me. The very words do I remember in the telegram two days after the scepter of intelligence has passed from London to Dublin. Again and again I read Edward's telegram. If it be true, if art be winging her way westward, and a vision rose up before me of Aragoses floating up the Liffey, laden with merchandise from all the ports of Phoenicia, and poets singing in all the bells of Merrion Square, and all in a language knew that the poets had learned the English language having been discovered by them, and as it had been discovered by me, to, a decli- to be a declining language, a language that was losing its verbs. The inflaming telegram arrived in the afternoon and it was possible to start the evening, but it seemed to me that the returning native should see Ireland arising from the sea, and thinking how beautiful the crests would show against the sunset, I remembered a legend telling how the earliest inhabitants of Ireland had the power of making the island seem small as a big pig's back to their enemies, and a country of endless delight to her friends. And while I sat wondering whether Ireland would accept me as a friend or as an enemy, the train steamed through the Midlands and my anger against Edward, who preferred his soul to his art, was forgotten. It evaporated gently like the sun haze at the edges of the wood yonder. A quiet, muffled day continued its dreams of spring and summertime, but my thoughts were too deeply set in the memories of glens where fairy bells were heard to heed the simple facts of nature, the hedgerows breaking into flower, the corn now a foot high in the fields, birds rising out of it, birds flying from wood to wood in the dim sunny air, flying as if they that had been flying all their lives still found pleasure in taking the air. I was too deeply set in my adventure to notice the red towns that flashed past, nor did I sentimentalise over the lot of those who lived in those ugly parallel streets, human warrens I should call them. I could think of nothing else but the sweetness of Etienne's legs as she washed them in the woodlands, and Angus coming perhaps to meet her, his doves flying around him, of Grania and Diamud sleeping under Cromlex or meeting the hermit in the forest, who had just taken three fish out of the stream of the horns of Finn heard in the distance and the bang of his hounds. The sudden sight of shore spinning its sagging steer would at other times have carried my thoughts back into medieval London, perhaps into some play of Shakespeare's interwoven with King and Baron. Now the legends of my own country, the renascent Ireland, absorbed me and so completely that I did not notice the passing of Stafford and Crow. It was not until the train flashed through Chester that I awoke from my reveries sufficiently to admire the line of faint yellow hills. 
caught sight of suddenly soon passing out of view. Before my wonderment ceased, we were by a wide expanse of water, some vast river or estuary of the sea, and my line of yellow hills far away, Cape Promontory or Embaying Land. I knew not which, until a fellow passenger told me that we were travelling along the D, and at low tide, the boats now proudly floating would be lying on the empty sand. A beautiful view it was at high tide, and languid waters lapping the rocks within a few feet of the railway, and a beautiful view it doubtless was at low tide, miles and miles of sand, a streak of water flashing halfway between me and the distant shore. We went by the manufacturing town and there must have been mines underneath the fields for the ground sagged and there were cinder heaps among the rough grass. Conway Castle was past. It reminded me of the castles of my own country. The Anglesey reminded me of the Druids. Yeats had told me that the Welsh Druids used to visit the brethren in Ireland to learn the deeper mysteries of their craft. Pictures rose up in my mind of these folk going forth in their galleys whether plied with oar or bone by sail I knew not, and I would have crossed the sea in a ship rather than a steamer. It was part of my design to sit under a sail and be the first to catch sight of the Irish hills, but the eye of the landsman wearies of the horizon, and it is possible that I went below and ordered the steward to call me in time. And it's also possible that I rolled myself up in a rug and sat on the deck, though this be not my ordinary way of travelling, but having no idea at the time of writing this book, no notes were taken, and after the lapse of years, details cannot be discovered. But I do remember myself on deck, watching the hills now well above the horizon, asking myself again if Ireland were going to appear to me small as a pig's back or a land of extraordinary enchantment. It was the hills themselves that reminded me of the legend on the left, rough and uncomely as a drove of pigs running down a lane, with one tall hill very like the peasant whom I used to see in childhood and the old man that wore a tall hat, knee breeches, worsted stockings and brogues. Like a pig's back, Ireland has appeared to me, I said, but soon after on my right a lovely hill came into view, shaping like a piece of sculpture, I said, perhaps I am going to see Ireland and it is an enchanted isle after all. While I was debating which oracle I should accept, the steamer churned along the side of the quay where, key where I expected, if not a deputation, at least some friends to meet me, but no one was there, though a telegram had been sent to Yeats and Edward informing them of my journey, and as there was nobody on the platform at Westland Row to receive me, I concluded that they were waiting at the Shelburne Hotel, but I entered that Hotel as a stranger from America might, unknown, unwelcomed, and it was with a sinking heart that I asked vainly if Edward had left a note for me, an invitation to dine with him at this club. He had forgotten he th never thinks of the gracious things to do, not because he is unkind, but because he is a little uncouth. He will be glad to see me, I said, when we met. All the same, it seemed to me uncouth to leave me to eat a solitary table or deux dinner when I had come over to his honour, and chewing the casual food that the German waiters handed me, I meditated the taunts that I would address to him about the friar whose advice he had sought in London, and whose advice he had not followed. He runs after his soul like a dog after his tail, and lets it go when he catches it, I muttered as I went down the street, angry to admire Marion Square, beautiful under the illuminate illumination of the sunset, making my way with quick irritable steps towards the ancient concert rooms whither the hall porter had directed me, and finding them by a stone cutter's yard, angels and crosses, a truly suitable place for a play by Edward Martin. 
I said. The long passage leading to the room seemed to be bringing me into a tomb. Nothing very renaissant about this, I said, pushing my way through the spring doors into a lofty hall with a balcony and benches down the middle, and there were seats along the walls placed so that those who sat on them would have to turn their heads to see the stage, a stage that had been constructed hurriedly by advancing some rudely painted wings and improvising a drop curtain. There is something melancholy in the spectacle of human beings enjoying themselves, but the melancholy of this dim hall I had never seen before, except in some of Sickert's pictures, the loneliness of an audience and its remoteness as it sits watching a small illuminated space where mummers are moving to and fro reciting their parts. And it is here that Edward thinks that heresy will flourish and put mischief into men's hearts, I thought, and searched for him among the groups, finding him not, but Yeats was there, listening reverentially to the sound of his verses. He went away as soon as the curtain fell, returning just before the beginning of the next act, his cloak and his locks adding, I thought, to the melancholy of the entertainment. His intentness interested me so much that I did not venture to interrupt it. His play seemed to be going quite well, but in the middle of the last act, some people came on the stage whom I did not recognise as part of the cast, and immediately the hall was filled with a strange wailing intermingled with screams. And now, being really frightened, I scrambled over the benches and, laying my hand upon Yeats's shoulder, begged him to tell me what was happening. He answered, The Kaoin, the Kaoin, the true Kaoin, and its singers had been brought in from Galloway. From Galloway, I exclaimed, You miserable man! And you promised me that the play would be performed as it was rehearsed. Instead of attending to your business, you have been wandering about from cabin to cabin, seeking these women. Immediately afterwards, the gallery began to howl, and the night, that night the ancient concert rooms reminded me of a cat's and dog's home suddenly merged into one. You see what you have brought upon yourself, miserable man, I cried in Yeats's ear. It is not, he said, the Cohen that they are howling at, but the play itself. But the play seemed to be going very well, I interjected, failing to understand him. I want to hear the Countess's last speech, I tell you after. A man must love his play very much, I thought, to be able to listen to such distressing circumstances. He did not seem to hear the catcalls, and when the last lines had been spoken, he asked if he had seen the cross of the guillotine. Wasn't it put into your hand as you came into the theatre, and while walking to the hotel... With me, he told me that the author of this pamphlet was an old enemy of his. All the heresies of the Countess Kathleen were quoted in the pamphlet, and the writer appealed to Catholic feeling to put a stop to the blasphemy. Last night, Yeats said we had to have the police in, and Edward, I am afraid, will lose heart. He will fear the scandal may stop the play. He spoke not angrily of Edward as I should have done, but kindly and sympathetically telling me that I must not forget that Edward is a Catholic, and to bring a play over that shocks people's feelings is a serious matter for him. The play, of course, shocks nobody's feelings, but it gives people an opportunity to think their feelings have been shocked, and it gives other people an opportunity to make noise. And Yeats told me how popular noise was in Ireland, and controversy too, when accompanied with the breaking of chairs, but I was too sad for laughter and begged him to tell me more about the friar whom Edward had consulted in London, and whose theology had not been accepted. Perhaps because Gill had advised Edward that the friar's opinion was only a single opinion, no better or no worse than any other man's. It appeared that Gill had held out hope to Edward that opinions regarding the Countess Kathleen quite differed 
from the friars might be discovered, and I more or less understood that Gil's voice is low and musical, that he had sung Hushabye Baby on a treetop, but a, but a public scandal might awaken the baby again and send it crying to one of the dignitaries of the church, so it may well be that we have seen the last of the Countess Kathleen. Yeats seemed to take the matter very lightly for one whom I had seen deeply interested in the play, and I begged him to explain himself, everything, Edward, the friar, and above all Ireland. In Ireland we don't mean all we say, that is your difficulty, and he began to tell me of the many enemies his politics had made for him, and in a sort of dream I listened, hearing for the hundredth time stories about money that had been collected, purloined information given to the police, and the swearing of certain men to punish the traitors with death. I was told how these rumours assassinations had reached the ears of Miss Gorn, and she and Yeats had determined to, sa- <clears throat> excuse me, to save the miscreants and manly fabulous stories of meetings in West Kensington, which in his imagination had become as picturesque as the meetings of Roman and Venetian conspirators in the 16th century. A few years before, Miss Gon had proclaimed 98 to a shattering accompaniment of glass in Dame Street, Yeats walking by her beholding divinity. We have all enjoyed that dream. If Our Lady be small, we see her with a hand mirror in the boudoir, and if she be tall as an Amazon, well, then we see her riding across the sky, hurling a javelin. And the stars, we have all believed that they could tell us everything if they only would. And we have all gone to someone to cast our horoscopes. So why jeer at Yeats for his humanities? We have all been interested in the Rosicrucians, Shelley, our Van Bird. Yeats knew all their strange oaths and looked upon himself as an adept. Even the disastrous pamphlet could not make him utterly forget Jacob Boehm, and we spoke of this wise man going up Marion Street, a dry subject, but no subject is dry when Yeats is the talker. Go on, Yeats, I said. Go on, I'd like to listen to you. You believe these things because Miss Gone believes herself to be Joan of Arc, and it is right that a man should identify himself with the woman he admires. Go on, Yeats, go on talking. I like to hear you. After some further appreciation of Jacob Bohm, we returned to the pamphlet. It is all very sad, Yeats, I said, but I cannot talk any more tonight. Tomorrow, tomorrow you can come to see me and we will talk about Edward and the cross or the guillotine. All right, that's the end of chapter two. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.